0: Before the race for the White House, there was this stage race. Atlantic City, the longtime home of the Miss America contest, and today we'll crown the king of the inaugural Tour de Trump. We relive the short-lived bike race put on by one of the candidates, and we expand our knowledge on tire pressure.
1: Tire pressure and compliance is sort of the new aerodynamics. It's the thing that nobody's thinking or talking about uh, that has a, kind of a huge gap in the knowledge and those who move to fill in that gap and make decisions based on the data are going to benefit tremendously.
0: The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, the podcast that always answers the call, even when one of us goes running off to Europe for the second time in a month. Thanks for finding our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, Red Kite Prayer, just some of the outlets where you can find the Pace Line. Thanks for stopping us in your ears Putting up with our ramblings. <laughs> Fatty, if you had a guess, what would you say is the most popular way to listen to our little show? During a ride with earbuds or in the car cranked up to 11 <laughs> or streaming on a computer? Do you have any guesses about
2: that? I bet streaming on a computer is the least popular way. I yeah. would guess that listening during a commute is the most popular way.
0: Yeah, the, the feedback I've gotten is most people, uh, solo riders, love it on their long ride when mm-hmm. they're out alone Yeah, to, to, to pass the time. Um, they like the they like the like length because it means they don't have to reach in their pocket and change their iPod to something else. Yeah. Uh, so they do appreciate the hour-long length for that reason. So, cool. Um, He is, of course, Fatty at FatCyclist.com. I am Michael Houghton, your PaceLine host. And Patrick Brady... All right. The publisher of Red Kai Prayer, he is out. Fatty, we play this music for a reason. Our buddy is on a cruise ship somewhere near Corsica. Corsica.
2: I'm so jealous. You ever been on a cruise? No, I've never been on a cruise. (laughs) I am so angry at him. Yeah, I, I have never done
0: the cruise ship thing. I think it's the... All those people on a boat, surrounded by water—I just, I probably couldn't get over those phobias to push myself on a cruise. But nonetheless,
2: oh, I could, I would. Oh, you could. Oh, I would be eating myself silly too. Uh, Wait a second. Here's,
0: here's my favorite part. I I love that big ending. Tip your waitress. I had
2: to get that in there. <laughs> thanks for thanks so much for coming tonight. <laughs> Try the wheel. That is that is the most leisure suit song in the whole world, isn't it? Oh, I love that.
0: Uh, I love the show. The show was actually funny. It was well written. Oh, uh, yeah. Was,
2: and wh- what it, was the name of the girl uh, uh, The uh, who, who was oh. like the captain's something? I don't even know. She was so the, hot. The cruise Julie. ship director? Julie. Yeah, oh, cruise yeah. ship director. Julie, oh, she yeah. had... That that little bob of a hair cut. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Very popular. That looked right good there. on her.
0: Uh, we will hear <laughs> from Patrick uh, a little later in the show. He has an interview with the head man at Silca, which would be quite interesting. So if you're into pressure, tire pressure, that is, uh, and pumps, and uh, anything that uh, has to do with your wheels, you want to listen to Patrick and the head of Silca. Last show, Fatty, we dared to discuss politics, and we came out okay, unscathed. Yeah. And I told my wife, Addy, afterwards that I thought your take on the topic of riding and chatting up issues and candidates with friends both surprised and impressed me. I thought that was cool how you would take on the issues with your buddies, talk about candidates and politics and so forth. So,
2: Oh, it's not that courageous. I mean, the fact is, if you ride with people who are similarly inclined to your politics, it doesn't take anything at all brave to ride and talk about politics
0: it can it can cause a little tension in a ride that's all I'm saying yeah I mean, yeah
2: if, absolutely you
0: know, people people are set in their ways and they have their opinions and sometimes they don't like to hear the other side so congrats to you for for bringing up uh, bringing up the issues Oh uh, you're a, a sweetheart a um so at the, the, the talk the political talk got to me thinking about about the big race and I'm not talking about the 1 the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue I'm talking about the one from the late 80s. Now only one of the two candidates for president has put on a bike race, and that would mm. be
3: one hundred and fourteen men began the tour de Trump in the heart of New York's capital
0: city, Albany. The first race, a two-mile individual time trial.
2: Uh, you remember the Tour de Trump, Fatty? I remember talking about the Tour de Trump when it came out. And I, I thought you know, I thought it was great. I thought it was going to be huge.
0: A lot of people thought it was race. going to be huge, including its namesake. Um The first Tour to Trump uh, took place in 1989, 10 stages. The race kind of had a weird finish. The leader took a wrong turn and lost his lead as the race headed for the Trump Plaza Hotel. Took a wrong turn. Racers complained. The course was poorly marked. Dag Otto Lauritsen of the 7-Eleven team ended up winning uh, the inaugural event. And then in 1990, the race expanded to Maryland and Delaware, and Raul Acala won that uh, version. But financial problems and a messy divorce led the the Donald to pull his sponsorship. Now, the organizers over those two years had built a relationship with DuPont. So the Tour de Trump became the Tour DuPont, and it went on to good success. Going into the first edition, though, of the Tour de Trump, the Donald was optimistic about the race, but pessimistic about his future in politics.
1: I think that with a little maturity, with a little time, with a little effort, we'll make this the equivalent of the Tour de France. I can't say we're going to make it more, although in theory, you can also say that we have many more people, so you in theory could make it more. But I would like to make this the equivalent of the Tour de France.
0: Ten years from now, do you see Donald Trump in politics?
1: I don't see myself as a politician. I think I speak my mind perhaps too bluntly. Uh, I like to tell the truth. I'm not sure that a great politician can always tell the truth. I do like to tell the truth. I like to say uh, what should be done and when it should be done. And I'm not sure that a politician's allowed to do that and get elected. And that's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate for the country. I can tell you that.
0: So the Tour de Trump never became the Tour de France, yet the Donald became a politician.
2: <laughs> and how how amazing that Donald Trump uh, started something with great fanfare and a lot of publicity And then had it kind of fall apart due to lack of organization.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) My favorite part of the Tour de Trump story is uh, the run-up to the first edition of of the stage race itself. Trump's attorney sent a cease and desist letter threatening to sue the organizers of a small race in Aspen, Colorado, (laughs) called Tour de Rump. Alleging that they had violated the trademark for the Tour de Trump. Rump, Trump. (sighs) The Tour de Rump folks, who started their race the year before... Wrote back and essentially said we're a little local event, leave us alone, and they never heard back. And the tour de rump lives on today. So good. F- the, 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 sometimes the little guy wins.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's funny how that echoes uh, with uh, current events. It really does. It, you know, the, it does. The lawsuits or threats of lawsuit that come do not come to fruition, and the the big uh, prom- promises of big things that then fall apart due to, at least in part, lack of organization. That's
0: interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to be, of course, fair and balanced here. So, (laughs) yeah, as far as Hillary Clinton and bikes are concerned, she did hold a town hall meeting at a bike shop in Iowa a month into her campaign.
1: Thanks to Bike Tech for welcoming us to this uh, amazing facility. I'm delighted uh, to have this chance to talk more about small business And so it's both new bikes, used bikes, customers' bikes, bike parts. Service. Service. Education. Mm -hmm. We do a little bit of everything. And it's able to kind of instill our our staff's passion of bicycling and healthy lifestyles in the community.
0: It was basically a small business roundtable. The bike shop was really just a backdrop. But there are pictures of, uh, if you Google Hillary Clinton and bikes, you'll find pictures of Hillary and Bill enjoying a bike ride. Uh, during – when she was first lady. So Hmm. she knows how to ride
2: a little bit. And and we should probably point out that the libertarian candidate, Gary Johnson, is a serious endurance cyclist. Um, And and in fact, I think in a CNN interview, he was still wearing a bike jersey because he arrived at the coffee shop where they were doing this on-camera interview on bicycle. I mean, uh-huh. he he's seriously into it. In fact, you kind of get the sense that he would much rather be riding than running.
0: Well, we should have had then a Johnson versus Kerry John because John Kerry right. rides too. Oh yeah, a hell of a lot, and that would have been a great race. They could have they could have lined it up, um, done a bike race, a time trial. Uh, Maybe an enduro or a downhill event, too, and then talk (laughs) politics if they wanted to. We've got to vote based on that. would have these two people. I would absolutely go to that. I know. Me, too. All right. Uh, Fatty, I don't know if it is a race or a ride or something else, but you have uh, lent your name and legs to something called 100 Miles of—I keep wanting to say 100 Miles to Nowhere, but it's 100 Miles— of Nowhere. What, what is this about? I see yeah. it on your website.
2: Yeah, I it's my own event. I put it on. It's called the 100 Miles of Nowhere. I, I was originally thinking 100 Miles to Nowhere, but this isn't where you go to Nowhere, where there actually is a destination, but rather that you don't go anywhere. So it is 100 Miles of Nowhere, uh, or at least that's my story. But this is a fundraiser I do with my readers every year where I ask them to ride 100 miles. They send in a uh, what I call a registration fee, which is just a, a money for a T-shirt and a donation to Camp Kesem, which is one of my very favorite uh, cancer charities. They put on fantastic week-long camps for kids who have parents who have been touched by cancer. Anyway, um, registration's over at this point, and approximately 400 people signed up. So kudos and thanks to all of them. And this weekend, I am doing my 100 miles of nowhere. And this year, I'm doing kind of a different one. And it looks to be a really hard one. I'm going to be starting at a local um, site, uh, a park called Cascade Springs. It's just a, a, natural, uh, a natural spring that comes up uh, from an aquifer, a very pretty scenic place, small parking lot. Uh, And it's a dead-end road, so it is a seven-mile climb back up to a road that actually does go somewhere. And it will take um, me—I will put in about 1,700 feet of climbing in the seven-mile climb and then return down, so 14-mile round trip. But there's about 300 feet of climbing on the descent as well because it's a three-mile descent, mile climb, three-mile descent again. So I will be, I, you know, per lap, getting in around 2,000-ish feet of climbing. So seven-plus laps, that's going to be around 15,000 feet of climbing, I think. Mm. Um, and frankly, I'm pretty scared. <laughs> and,
3: <laughs>
2: uh, and I'm going to be doing it on a different bike than I've been doing before. Um, uh You know, I I have a really nice, uh, but a few years old uh, specialized tarmac. And Mm -hmm. instead, I'm going to be riding my felt uh, uh, CX bike. Mm -hmm. And I have put uh, 38 millimeter tires on it that I plan to be riding at about 50 to 60 PSI and see how that goes. I'm kind of putting my money where my mouth is. I've been uh, thinking a lot about pressure and tire width. And I think that an all day ride with a lot of climbing and a lot of descending will let me see, you know, how much I like it and whether a, you know, about 17 pound uh, CX bike set up uh, on the road. You know, Mm -hmm. is that something that's for me or am I going to be hating myself for it at the end of the day? I will say that I do plan to keep my road bike On my on my car rack, which will be at Cascade Springs, just in case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: In case that this is a you're riding pavement though, right?
2: Yes, it is. uh, Mm -hmm. This is a paved ride that I'm doing.
0: Mm -hmm. And what are the the other folks who've signed up for this? Give me an idea of what type of rides they've promised to do.
2: Well, that's the awesome thing about it. The um, the hundred miles of nowhere um, original originated uh, in the very room that I'm talking in right now with me on my rollers, watching, uh, a DVD for a hundred miles. And I mean, literally a hundred miles on rollers, that was tough. Um, mm-hmm. so that was the first one. Um, other people have, uh, uh one person did a hundred miles in his circular driveway. I don't even remember how many thousands of, uh, uh, you know of circles that was but you can never get more than like seven or eight miles per hour in the tight circle that he was going in yeah. I mean that that's just nuts this year um uh one guy has managed to recruit a bunch of other people and they are going to be doing uh, their hundred miles in a NASCAR track and I love that idea so much that I that,
0: that's Don isn't it yeah, Don Putnam. that's yeah. right
2: that's right yeah. you met him in Leadville mm-hmm. um, yeah he and a uh, bunch of local guys there are going to be doing uh doing that in a NASCAR track and boy I I, I tried seriously to find a way to get out there and it's just a money and job things but yeah. I wish them all kinds of luck. I've had uh military guys uh do it in Afghanistan. I had a guy do it on a uh aircraft carrier and I always love hearing from people in the military who do it because they, you know, they have such amazing places and their dedication is just incredible. I've had a guy do it uh, on a unicycle, which is just oh, incredible. That's um, incredible. Yeah, one hundred miles neighborhood ride on a unicycle, extraordinary. So you know, people and, and I've had lots of people do you know much easier versions. Some people who aren't in great shape will do the ride over a course of several days, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, you know, they, they're they doing it the way you can. Some people have said, I'm nowhere near ready for 100 miles. How about if I do 100K? I'm like, thumbs up to you. You know, you're, you're stretching yourself and doing something for charity. Who am I to say that uh, a 100-mile race has to be a single-day event? It can be a five-day stage race as far as I'm concerned. So it's something I created that was silly, uh, but it's doing a lot of good. And uh, it really just sort of touches me to see People uh, thinking of funny ways to do something good.
0: Right. Again, it's at your website, right? They go to fatcyclist.com to to sign up?
2: Well, registration is over at this point, but uh, we'll be having stories. Uh, That's another thing. I ask people to, when they complete their 100 miles of nowhere, to send pictures and video and write-ups of their event and everyone likes seeing you know the crazy or fun or difficult uh, ways that they uh, have done have done the race. So it's always uh, kind of my favorite part of the year for the blog to see uh, what, what kinds of uh, what kinds of events uh, and efforts people bring uh, to this uh, sort of loosely structured thing that I've put together.
0: Again, it's 100 miles of nowhere, not to nowhere, as I've tried to do several <laughs> times. Um, uh, check it out at FatCyclist.com. You, you're bound to be inspired, I think. Very cool event, Fatty. Thanks for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you were talking about tire pressure. Well, coming up, we turn things over to Patrick and his interview with the head of Silka. They'll be talking about pressure and pumps. Next on the Pace Line.
2: Hi, friends. Don from here, Lebanon I-44 Speedway. I just wanted to let those of you who are registered for the event know that the track is an awesome facility, the banking is a non-issue, and if you're looking to uh, do your best 100 mile ride, this is the place to do it. Uh, Fatty's got an event called 100 Miles of Nowhere supporting a great cause, Camp Keesum. Come out November 12th, 8 a.m. and join us here at Lebanon I-44 Speedway.
0: The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, FatCyclist.com, RedKitePrayer.com, the two behemoths behind this thing. Fatty, uh, what what pressures do you tend to run, tire pressures I'm talking about, do you tend to run on the road and why?
2: Well, up until really just a month or two ago, I rode at about 100 PSI and I set my wife's uh, bike up at around 95 PSI. And uh, recently, just having learned from a cycling tips podcast that I did with uh, Josh Portner of Silka and um, Jan Heine of uh, Compass Cycles that I was doing it all wrong. So I've recently you know bought much wider tires and I've bought all kinds of, you know, bought all kinds of. well, make it sound like I've spent a lot of money, but I haven't. I bought wider tires and latex tubes. And I'm running now at between 55 and 60 PSI. And I'm running at 55 to 60 PSI for my wife's uh, road bike.
0: Right. I've gone down the same path. I mean, I'm into, I, I bought some latex tubes. I'm running slightly wider tires on what would be considered race tires for a race bike 25s, mm-hmm. latex tubes. But all the time I'm running around on 28 or 30s. I love tubeless on the road. So I run tubeless, I run sub 80. Uh, on the road quite a bit, um, for a 28, you know, that's, yeah. um, that's getting down there. Um, I've lowered my wife's pressures too. I used to pump her up to 100 all the time. Same as you. I brought things down 10, 15 PSI easy on, on skinny tire. I'm not going to be on skinny road tires. Right. Uh, and in fact, you steered me straight at Leadville too. You got me to lower my pressure there, um, uh, for, for the Leadville trail 100 and which worked out great by the way, because the course was rockier over the peaks, uh and that day worked out great so but it is um, not
2: easy to do i mean just from a difficult to break old habits perspective mm-hmm. right yeah. i keep you know i i am still a little bit wary you know in my head I know okay I'm doing this I'm doing this the right way but in my gut because I've been riding for 20 years I keep thinking oh I'm riding this way too soft I'm riding this way too soft and yeah it, it's a definitely you know I'm an old dog learning new tricks here
0: mm-hmm. well Patrick spent some time with a guy who has put a lot of time and thought into the question of tire pressure Josh Portner yeah he's the head of the uh, of Silca, the super pump maker that is also doing great work with a wheel balance and seat bags, but pumps and pressure remain their bread and butter. And Patrick and Josh spoke about tire width and pressure and how to arrive at what might be the perfect number.
3: Josh, thanks loads for uh, getting on the phone here with me. Uh, it's been a little while since we last talked, but uh, you seem to be having an awful lot of fun chasing pet projects with Silka. Uh As I hear it, you've got a few new things to announce.
1: Yeah, we've got uh, actually a whole lot of new things. I think we just uh we just finished launching nine new products at uh Eurobike and Interbike, so it's been it's been a busy year for us. <laughs> <laughs> no moss on you, huh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but uh but no, we're we're excited we've got a new partnership with Boa Closure Systems to we're doing a uh New seat roll that uh, it's the first on bike storage system that attaches via a BOA closure and that has just been unbelievable. I mean, what a what an awesome company to work with, and uh, and then uh, even better to to stand in the booth at uh, at a show like Eurobike or Interbike and have people literally stop in their tracks. You know, with their head kind of hang lagging behind their body going, is that a, is that what I think it is Yeah. Uh, yeah. as they see the product? So it's, it, it's been a great, it's been a great launch season for us. I,
3: I got to say, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that there are still seat bags that use Velcro given the numbers of expensive bib shorts that they've all killed. Right. You right. Know, it's like, how is this still a thing? Um, and so, I mean, I, at a certain level, I'm not surprised that uh, you had the vision to partner with boa on that but um still it's like how is it we you know we're still struggling to come up with fresh ideas for how to do seat bags you know uh that yeah, don't destroy your yeah. shorts yeah.
1: yeah yeah no it's true i i think we're we're in what i say it's these are deflationary categories right people they just want to buy a cheap thing and next year they'll buy another cheap thing and you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity left to. Well, why don't we make that thing better and just charge a few dollars more for it, <laughs> and, yeah. and and boom, you can you know you can save your three hundred dollar bib shorts with a seat bag that cost a few extra dollars.
3: Yeah, well, and I think our listeners are pretty partial uh, to going for the thing of quality that will last. You know, buy it once, buy it right.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs>
3: Very cool. And uh I uh there were a couple other things that you had cooking that you wanted
1: to talk about? Yeah, so you know, we're going f- full on into professional tools, so we launched a set of cycling uh really cycling optimized professional grade T-handles. You know, mm-hmm. it's the the European pro tour mechanic's secret uh secret tool. They're very hard to find outside of a couple of Italian manufacturers and every Pro tour team and mechanic I've ever worked with has had a set. Uh, and so we found a company that actually produces the, the raw forgings for one of the Italian guys, and uh, we're able to design our. Our handles from those uh, those forge blanks and really optimize some of the geometries and sizes to work specifically with uh, known problem fasteners in cycling. You know, we've got a ten millimeter that is the answer for your Campy Ultra Torque ten millimeter bottom bracket bolt, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've got an eight millimeter that is ex- it's specifically designed for breaking free pedals because we all know that stuck pedal with the <laughs> with the eight yeah. millimeter hex in the back. Yep. Uh, and so yeah, we've we've had a lot of fun really approaching some of these problems uh you know from the mechanic side of things and and looking for the opportunity there to take you know things that are possibly that seem to be known uh and and then do them one or two steps better uh or with a specific take from a you know bicycle or bicycle mechanic perspective and so it's it's a lot of fun to really refine those those details and then know kind of be able to show them off to everybody and and have people nod uh, in agreement as you explain the, the concepts that well, i know exactly the problem you're talking about <laughs> and, and uh yeah it's it's been great so professional t-handles we've launched the world's first travel torque wrench uh it's a small you know compact fits in a pocket fits in a seat roll um, torque wrench from my, you know, experience uh, back in the zip days of, you know, when when do people really break seat posts and handlebars? They break them on the side of the road, making that adjustment on the fourth ride, yeah. right? Because that, you know, a, a handlebar especially, right? It, not tight enough, it slips. Uh, too tight, you can crack the bar. It, it, it's a very fine line to have to walk. Uh, on feel and particularly using generally a multi-tool right where you just don't have a great feel for the torque uh compared to a home tool or a shop tool and and so that that's where you see the damage happen and we're really excited to hopefully be able to put a product out there that just eliminates that uh you know from the
3: Yeah, i travel with a bike a lot and and uh you know, I I started traveling with a, a torque wrench a long time ago, but, you know, it's one of those things where to have something simple that you know is already set at the right torque and you really don't have to think much, um, that's that's a pretty handy thing. And to have it small small enough to fit in a seat bag uh, would be <laughs> refreshing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's 100 millimeters long and 12 millimeters diameter and 30 grams. So it's a six four titanium. Uh, comes with a little we call it T ratchet. It's a ratcheting T handle multi tool that uses bits. So you can also customize the bits to match your bike. Uh, all all of us who travel with bikes, right, know know how that works. Yeah. <laughs> you know you have your your set of bits for each different bike because they all end up different in some way or another. Um, and so really it allows a lot you know a high level of customization uh, as well as as giving you torque in a portable package.
3: Very cool. Well, I look forward to getting a chance to check that one out. Yeah. But the real reason we're talking today is because of the uh, war and peace you composed on uh, tire size and inflation and perception and rolling resistance. Um, So... I mean, maybe what we need to do is back up just a second and for our listeners talk about, you know, how is it that one of the brightest minds in wheel design that the industry has seen decided to leave Zip and take over Silka and spend his career obsessed with inflation? I mean, what the hell, dude?
1: <laughs> well, I think I, I think there's a lot of seeds that are planted over the years of developing wheels, and of course, you know, wheels can't get the job done without the tire. And as every race mechanic, uh, you know, in auto racing, motorcycle racing, and even bicycle racing will tell you that, you know, the tire is the most important thing on your bicycle right it's the only thing actually in contact with the ground so it's the only thing that can transmit forces to the ground it's what keeps you upright you know when you're cornering Um, it allows you to you know put down the traction it's the softest spring in the system so it dominates Mm -hmm. the compliance of the bicycle Uh, i mean there's just there's so much in tires and at the top Levels of pro racing, you know, people are always uh, well. In the old days, people were amazed. I think now with the internet, people are not the people who, who who read about it know. You know, the pros race on three hundred dollars tires, right? Because uh, the the finer the casing, the higher the quality of the tire, the lower the rolling resistance, the better the feel. I mean, the benefits just go on and on. And so you have these events like Roubaix and Flanders, where really the the race every year is won in using off-sponsor, very expensive, very exotic tires, and you know the, the wheels, the bicycles, the, the changes, the customization gets a lot of attention, but really, at the end of it, I mean, we're studying to develop the, the 303s for Roubaix, you can do a lot with the wheel, you can do a lot with the bike, the tire just dominates the system. Uh, and so partly some of that is, you know, is what we call springs in series. You know, the tire is the softest spring, so it dominates the math equation uh, that, that controls compliance. But also it's the thing that's absorbing and providing the grip and the traction actually on the stones. And so we spent, uh, we spent a ton of time developing layups, developing wheel designs. But really, when you get there, all of the tuning and tweaking is being done at the tire pressure level, uh, which led me to understanding that the pumps and gauges the teams were using were terrible. I mean, we, you know, our, our first trip over there, I think we broke 30 sets of wheels and had no repeatability in our data. It was just a complete train wreck. Uh, but we did end up finding out that the three pumps on the team truck were 12 PSI difference between them at in the 70 psi range. So you you, you literally as i like <laughs> to say, you know, Fabian that that first year trying to win on the the carbon rims. I mean, he his race literally could have come down to the flip of a coin of what pump that mechanic had grabbed on that morning had all of that study and all of that time and energy and effort not gone into that on the front end for us to realize, you know, wait a minute, the test we just ran that worked is not repeatable. Well, it's not repeatable because of the wheel. It wasn't repeatable because the tire pressure was wrong. And so, you know, we, we, i had been hot rodding pumps with fancy high accuracy gauges for, for a number of years when the silk opportunity presented itself to me. So, you know, and then there's other things, right? Like, uh, as, as a wheel engineer, spending time doing carbon development, wind tunnel development, there is a piece of you that just has to sit there and go, why, why can't anybody just make a valve extender that works? Right? Can, we, can we not make a disc wheel adapter that just bloody works? Uh, and so when the Silk Opportunity presented itself, which was you know Claudio uh, Sachi, the, the owner, the grandson of the founder, was dying of cancer and he called me uh, wondering if I knew anybody who would be interested in buying the company because the company was, was about to enter a uh, receivership in Italy, bankruptcy essentially. And um, and so that's how the opportunity presented. And I said, why not? <laughs> Let's go have some fun.
3: <laughs> wow. Um, OK, so you, you go into Silca. You start making the world's finest floor pump yet again. Um, and then, you know what? Two years has gone by, and then you start publishing this series of posts about the relationship of tire uh, rim width to tire width, tire width and tire height, rolling resistance, pressure to rolling resistance, and, uh, you know, casing tension. You know, what— what was it that you kind of thought people didn't understand well enough to, uh, to result in, uh, yeah, the, the tire war and peace?
1: So the, the exciting opportunity here for me was you, you think of the way, you know, we would approach wind tunnel design of something or, uh, you know, designing a bicycle frame, doing stiffness and weights and deflections. The reality is that no one has ever done this looking at the tires there's no there's no data set in existence that i can find or any of my you know my kind of inner circle of bicycle science uh you know people that uh, we, we love to share data and help each other out and i mean some of the you know brightest most amazing minds in our sport uh, i i have access to and in a single email can hit 20 of them and it, it's pretty cool to have people at the very top levels come back and say wow gosh i I've never heard of anything like that. You know, has anyone ever done a, um, you know, a static deflection spring rate study on bicycle tires at different pressures? No. I mean, this is simple, simple stuff. This would be like the equivalent of saying, you know, had anybody ever done a torsional stiffness test on a frame? And and the answer being no. Uh, and so you you look and we even talk to and work with some. Uh, engineers and designers and you know auto racing and even at the formula one level they 'll tell you you know we can we can today with CFD and different computational models, you can build and run an entire f one car from the internal combustion engine to the aerodynamics. every last millimeter of that car can be run and modeled in a computer except for the tire, and the tires are still what? They still – they produce the tires, dozens of prototypes of dozens of styles, and they physically test them through these very dramatic loading scenarios. And that is the data that's fed into the computer to do the handling models of those cars. We, to this day, cannot accurately model the performance behavior of a tire because it is just too complex. Uh, And and so – and that blows people's minds, but I think – the other side of the coin is that I think everybody just assumes this was figured out a hundred years ago. It's a tire. It's been around forever. You put air in it, done. Uh, And so to me, that felt like a tremendous opportunity to really understand the space. I mean, in in a lot of ways, tire pressure and compliance is sort of the new aerodynamics. It's the thing that nobody's thinking or talking about uh, that has a, of a huge gap in the knowledge and those who move to fill in that gap and make decisions based on the data are, are going to benefit tremendously, uh, in, in the near term, because it, it will take everyone as, as it did with aerodynamics. It'll take a lot of people, a lot of time to come around to the realization that this isn't just some made up phenomenon, that, that this is winning races, um, and And for the rest of us who aren't you know pro athletes, the, the reality is you know this you can change the the handling, the ride, the behavior, uh, really, the entire character of your bicycle can be changed with some pretty simple tire pressure changes, right? and yeah. so and so that that's where the war and peace started with, well, let's take a data set. Well, let's use that to drive another data set, and then you get into things like, you know, the air pressure makes the tire casing grow because it's a bias-plied casing. Well, bigger tires are, are less aero, so tire pressure does affect aerodynamics. Um, you know, the casing, study, casing tension study was an interesting one to look at uh, just the effect that I think is often lost on people. You know, oh, I, I, I want a more comfortable ride, so I'm going to put bigger tires on my, my bike. Well, I put bigger tires on, and what do you do with the pressure? You pump it to the same pressure. Well, that 28 millimeter tire at 100 psi is actually a stiffer, less compliant tire than a 23 millimeter tire at 100 psi. And I think that's it, it's little things like that that we can really take advantage of and say, hey, you know, let, let's target casing tension uh, instead of that pressure number. And as you see in our data, what you actually can end up with is better grip, better compliance, better comfort with greater safety for the rim in an impact type scenario uh, and really you're improving grip you're improving rolling resistance i mean it's across the board improvement if you follow the data um, <laughs> but, but that's the key is that the data up until pretty recently didn't exist and our data set is very it's it's small and it's incomplete and so there's huge opportunity to build and, and really grow this data set into uh into something that is much more meaningful than it even is today
3: wow okay so uh my recollection from the posts is that uh you said for for basically every millimeter you go up in tire width you should decrease pressure by three to four percent um this is to uh keep kind of comfort static and
1: uh, rolling resistance, static as well. Is that the case? So th- that's purely from a casing tension and stiffness perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. So yes. Yeah, so every every millimeter you you go up entire casing uh, width or casing diameter, you want to lower your pressure three to four percent, and that is to to give you an equivalent compliance in the ride so which is is where uh i guess you could flip that on its head and say okay if i have a 23 millimeter tire and i go to a 25 millimeter tire and i want to run the same pressure i'm going to run somewhere in that seven to eight percent uh higher stiffness in the 25 than in the 23. so i'm at the same pressure i'm actually less comfortable now here's where we get into the limits of human perception uh, you know, human perception's only shown in blinded studies to be in more like the the fifteen percent range, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so so you're very likely to be very convinced that the twenty fives are more comfortable than the twenty threes, even when they're not, because the the delta here is less than the limit of your perception. So, which, which is a whole other thing we love to get into with our uh, our athletes.
3: <laughs> right, right, right. But so you're you're saying that. Um, if you go from a 25 to a 28 and you only drop your pressure uh, by say uh, 10 psi, uh, you're actually riding on a, a stiffer tire, but you probably won't even be able to tell that. Correct? Correct <laughs> Yeah, wild. Yeah. Um, and so uh, now what if you're just if you're dropping, If you're dropping air pressure or tire pressure um, by three to four percent, what is that doing to rolling resistance as you go up in size?
1: So it's probably either keeping it the same or improving it, uh, because the rolling resistance of the larger tires, the larger casing width tires. Uh, of identical construction okay so say we're taking a <laughs> right this is where you have to start putting all these these layers on but you know uh conti gp 4000 at 23 and then at 25 and then at 28 we're going to call that identical construction and you'll see that as the tire gets wider uh and and you follow the pressure re- uh, the <laughs> pressure recommendations the rolling resistance of the larger casing tire will go down um it, it's slight i mean we're not talking You know, huge savings, but but the 28 will roll slightly faster than the 23 uh, or the 25, and so. But but where it gets really interesting is in our data sets that really kind of debunk this this myth, really that comes from roller testing that higher pressures always roll faster. And I think that's another you know really important thing to look at. You know, as, as I grew up racing, it was you, know, you had to have the highest pressure, of your tire you know (laughs) you you see the number on the side of the casing run it at that and and you know people would say oh and you you can safely run above that and the higher the better and what we found uh, actually begins to match some mathematical models that exist out there for what are termed in automotive as suspension losses we i like to use the term impedance Uh, and jan heine he's uh, at, at Compass Tires and Bicycle Quarterly, he's done some study on this as well and found some similar data. And so he and I have gotten to be, uh, you know, gotten to be friends and, and discuss a lot of this in the back end. We he uses the term suspension losses. I say impedance because it it just feels right. If you're familiar with electrical engineering, it kind of makes sense. Um, but impedance is the concept of at at some point the road roughness is such that as the tire gets stiffer the the bicycle the system has to ride over that roughness right every every peak has to be ridden over and every valley is ridden down into and you know one of the analogies i always use is the um you know the, the jeep and the mercedes right? <laughs> right that if you've ever been in a jeep wrangler on the highway at 80 miles an hour you you think you are on the edge of death right yeah. i mean yeah. this is a terrifying experience and the feeling the perception of speed is very high and if you ever go on 80 miles an hour in a big you know s-class mercedes or the like on the highway you could darn near fall asleep you know they make the steering wheel vibrate and things now uh if it senses you nodding off because you your perception of motion it, it's very minor mm-hmm. the, the reality from the data is that both of them are going 80 miles an hour. And so that's the human perception part that's interesting with the tires. You know, people run these very high tire pressures and you just jar the heck out of yourself and it feels so fast. Uh, if you look at the data and, you know, power meters and, and things like the quart collector, which we, we use in our study, have really allowed us to take that perception element out of this. And, um, you know, oftentimes we see in our data, the the rougher roads, the riders come back. Pretty much every time, saying the higher pressures were faster, and pretty much every time in the data, you you look and go, nah, actually you weren't. <laughs> um, and so it's <laughs> it, it's those things that I think we we have to get over. Um, you know, I I lately have been telling people, you know, smooth is the new fast, right? <laughs> or smooth, yeah. yeah. Smooth is you know you shouldn't be looking for that feeling of fast, that feeling of being on the edge. You should be looking for that feeling of smoothness. That's not squishy, Um, because once it starts to get squishy, that starts to get slow again. But yeah, if you look at uh, at the data sets that we have, your rolling resistance chart in the real world is a combination of a smooth the drum line, which is sort of a fall, you know, a line that falls. Uh, as it goes to the right, sort of an asymptotic uh, mm-hmm. limit, you know, out at infinity with to some number, and then it's intersected by this impedance line, which you can think of as r- roughly a 45-degree up and to the right sort of line. And so your actual resistance curve makes a bit of a V. And the thing to remember about the V is that it is steeper on the right, the high-pressure side, than it is on the low-pressure side. And so what the data tell us is that You are significantly better to be 10 PSI under pressure than you are to be 10 PSI over pressure. And, and the, and the beauty of that from the, being the person on the bike is that you are also now reaping all of the comfort benefits and everything else of being on the under pressure side of things, right? Your grip is better. Your comfort is better. Um, You know, your rolling resistance is very likely better Uh, and you now have the ability to better handle rougher surfaces because, of course, as the surface roughens, this curve moves to the left. So as we think, you know, if you're on a polished wooden track, you know, this, this Uh, the curves are very shallow and the numbers are way out to the right you know 200 psi that really is faster if your tires are glued a certain way on certain tracks uh, polished wood but as you get into concrete track uh, you know we we did a very uh, advanced study here at the velodrome in indianapolis and you know it's a an older but nice surfaced concrete velodrome and the peak minimum rolling resistance for 23 millimeter tire on this track here is around 115 psi which is far far below what most people want to. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and and it's a combination of it's it's a 23 so as you go to you know 20 millimeter tire will need a bit higher pressure to run optimally and if you're running an 18 or a 19 it'll need higher still but the reality at the the surface level is that it's just not that good a surface, right? It's not it's not the new polished wood surface uh, at at the BMC Velodrome in Switzerland, right? I mean that's sort of the that's sort of the gold standard right now uh, of, of surfaces. But even there, you know, you see that the difference from a, a 200 psi to a 280 psi it, it's it's less than a watt. Uh, I mean it's almost nothing. And then eventually even on those polished wood surfaces, because the tire becomes so much harder than the wood. Uh, or doesn't become harder than the wood exactly, but it becomes so hard relative to the wood, and you're deflecting the wood, and there's surface imperfections, your rolling resistance starts to go back up again. So, um, you know, everything has its limits. It really isn't that more is always better. Wow.
3: Um Are there kind of general guidelines you'd be willing to give people in terms of, okay, if you're running a 28 millimeter tire, you really shouldn't go above this pressure, generally speaking. If you're running a 25, you know, kind of kind of don't go beyond X. Do you have a sense of that or is it something that really people need to whip out a calculator and, and do a little thinking about this?
1: I, the, we have struggled to build an algorithm uh, you know something we could use to help people understand this better or, or help people calculate for them themselves and the complexities are rider weight right heavier riders do need more pressure lighter riders need less uh, your tire size and it's your tires measured size is what's critical and, and this is another overlooked you know a 23 doesn't it's not always a 23 uh, right is in fact it's almost never a 23 uh and and depending on what rim you know you put it on a 15 c bead width rim it it's probably a 24 um you know you put it on some of the modern 19 c rims it, it could easily be a 26 26 and a half uh and so 23 doesn't mean 23 and then the third piece of the equation that's very complicated and one that we're grappling with from kind of a uh, how to wrap this up into a little algorithm is the road surface. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, and one of the things that we're finding as we do surface measurement is that a lot of times it's the negative spaces in the surface that are hiding uh, the roughness and driving your optimal pressure down. if you If you look at our graphs in the uh, uh, in, in our data on the our website, you'll see that you know we, we had the same course at multiple stages of paving. And so we, we to, just to give the whole story, Butler University repaved a kilometer stretch of road. And in the process of that, and they did it in the summer when no students were there, and so in the process of that, we ended up with this beautiful out-and-back kilometer each-way course that we could ride on from the, you know, they come in and they pavement mill it, and so you have this perfect rough uh, eight millimeter peak valley, you know, surface perfectly out and back. Um, and you run it, you know, we use the core collector and uh, which gives you just phenomenal GPS data and a very high precision core power meter. And, uh, and you can get some really beautiful data. Well, then they come in and they put down ch- like a chip and seal type surface and you can run on that. And then they did a coarse pave and ultimately they do the final pave and they compact it. But if you get down and you pour like a silicone molding compound on that, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, perfect surface, and you pour liquid silicone on it and peel it back, you actually end up in negative. You end up with a terribly rough surface um, because there's all these little negative spaces, right, that kind of tunnel down in. And so that surface that seems like as perfect as it's ever going to get, it actually, as we've now done from subsequent testing, it. It will take a couple of years of being driven on to kind of compact further, and it will actually get faster uh, as it's driven on. And then at some point, it starts to get ripply and wavy and other issues. You know, the, the, uh, you know, we'll have ice and snow, and they'll shovel it, and it'll be destroyed in three years because this is Indiana. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, <laughs> out where you are, you guys don't have this problem. So, you know, new pavement is, is – Less than ideal, and we we did some study on this around the Olympics for a number of athletes, and you know they had freshly paved um, a good bit of the TT course in sort of a section. And the two things we found there 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 were higher negative space uh, than you would have expected, and also that the pavement because it, you know you think of how uh, kind of sticky and gelatinous the hot asphalt is as it's put down. Well, in that hot, humid Rio environment stayed soft longer than you would have expected. And so, you know, the hardness of the surface is another driver. And so, you know, optimal pressures down there were a, a bit lower than a lot of people um had imagined. But because the surface, you know, at a distance you say that's perfect pavement. Um, but perfect pavement really can be a whole lot of different things. And and the difference, the resultant pressure differences could be, you know, fifteen, twenty Psi. Um Wow, you know, from two different, week-old "quote-unquote" perfect pavements. So th- there's a there's just a lot of detail in there, but that to me is exciting because that's the opportunity. Wow,
3: fascinating. Well, we're we're going to keep tabs on on your uh, blog uh, there at silka.cc uh, I, I mean, I for one will be following it and I look forward to the next time I have a chance to bump into you in person and maybe we can sit down for a beer and talk about this a little more. It's fascinating stuff, especially because now I live in a place where there's not a smooth surface to be found anywhere except maybe inside the supermarket.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't even gotten into gravel and this whole <clears throat> desire to go places we weren't going 10 years ago. that That's the other uh, most exciting thing happening uh right. in the industry. We'll do, do I, another
3: call on that sometime soon. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Man, Josh, thank you so much. This has been a treat. Thank you. Again, that was Patrick and Josh Portner of Silka. We
0: will have links to Josh's writings on what you heard over at redkiteprayer.com. Coming up, I consult Pastor Fatty on my moral dilemma, and we have our pace line picks.
1: This video is about bicycle pumps and how to use a pump to inflate your tire. Just push the pump down on the valve stem
2: and then lift the lever to lock the head in place and now I'm ready to inflate the tire. The Pace
0: Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fatty of FatCyclist.com. I'm Michael Houghton, your host, uh, Patrick Brady, uh, out of the country. (laughs) He's uh, near Corsica on the love boat, I think. Uh, Some type of cruise. He's going to explain it in a bit uh, in his Pace Line picks, I think. Uh, Fatty, I'm finding myself, though, um, interested in what uh, Lance Armstrong has to say these days. And he's saying much more Hmm. uh, through a podcast, which I've listened to. He's inserting himself in more situations, like when those five cyclists were Modan in Michigan, something we covered here on the Pace Line. He made it to their memorial ride. He's starting an endurance series. Um, I continue to consult Livestrong, the website, Livestrong.com, for information on health and wellness. Of course, I guess without Lance, we wouldn't have had the Livestrong website. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this guy continues to make you scratch your head once in a while by things he does. He pulled out of a, a big conference in Ireland recently after the the promoters had sold tickets based on his appearance. Um, still, though, I find myself not so much forgiving him for what he did because, you know, the way he treated people through the whole scandal really does bother me. But the scandal itself, the drug taking, the doping, I guess I'm, I'm getting over that and I'm willing to listen to what he has to say. I mean, look at it this way. I'm a huge baseball fan, a Giants fan, San Francisco Giants. By all accounts, Barry Bonds, who was a longtime Giant, did not play the game fairly. He's the home run king, but a lot of people accused him of cheating to get there. Um, Of course, a lot of his players, a lot of the players of his era did the same thing. Still, I will listen to Barry Bonds talk baseball or hitting any day of the week. And I guess I'm kind of having the same feeling when it comes to Lance Armstrong. Uh, I Want to listen to him for maybe personal need, or to get some type of new information, or to have some type of new understanding. I'm, I'm, mm. but I, I'm find myself in this bit of this moral dilemma. I'm kind of spinning around with myself, going, "Am I doing the right thing? Is it okay to lend my ears to this guy, or have I become a, a sellout uh, by by listening to Lance Armstrong?" So, fatty, be my moral compass.
2: Oh, I don't know if I get, if I get to be anyone's moral compass. Um, I I was probably one of the last people to ever say, yes, it looks like Lance was a doper. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of people who think of me as the, as the moral sellout. Um, that said, um, and you know with my, with my history and background, as far as Armstrong goes, completely acknowledged. Um, I don't see the problem. <laughs> it's, it is not a crime for someone to be interesting. And Lance Armstrong is, if you know, if you take away everything else, which essentially has been done, he is an interesting person. The few yeah. times that I ever talked with him uh, in person, uh, that was something that really struck me, is that he tells a fantastic story. He thinks mm-hmm. uh, in a clean, straight line. He is able to describe a great story arc you know he's got a he's got a great gift for conversation and for storytelling and 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 this might be kind of funny I, I have not i should say really gotten into his podcast i listened to like the first couple episodes just mostly out of curiosity it's like well you know here's a guy who in my in in my experience tells a great story and it's like well he's talking about things that i frankly uh, and with people who i don't know who they are like you know rock and roll artists and things like that i'm like yeah no thanks it, and it's probably interesting to some people but it didn't really suit my particular interest and so you know I, I unsubscribed but it didn't it wasn't because it's lance armstrong it was because you know his podcast didn't really uh didn't really catch me it, i i expected it to be more interesting than it was so that it, it does interest you i say listen to it enjoy it um it doesn't it doesn't change anything. right. Are you uh,
0: do you use the Livestrong website for information and so forth?
2: Um, well, it's probably well, I don't know if it's important, but it's worth distinguishing livestrong.com, which is a for profit company and uh, distinguishing that from livestrong.org, which is the cancer awareness charity. So I think what you are going to is liftstrong.com which is basically a you know a, a health and fitness website that really I think apart from name sharing and maybe pays a licensing fee has very little to do with liftstrong.org. I have no idea whether there is any affiliation with Lance, with Lance Armstrong uh with liftstrong.com at all. Yeah, but if there is, I'm guessing that he doesn't make a lot, and I'm guessing that he doesn't have any day-to-day uh, to, do, uh, to do with it.
0: Well, thanks. I think yeah, you put me at ease a little bit about my
2: decision. I mean, <laughs> Did I? Uh, <laughs> or did I just make it worse? Yeah, you know,
0: and it's like if you come out and tell somebody, oh, yeah, I, I listen to Lance or I, I pay attention to what he's doing – I've been listening to him a little. You know, you never know the type of reaction you're going to get. Some people are going to look at like, how can you? How can you do that? Yeah. How can he? He crossed all of us. Um. But uh, but he's still
2: interesting. I mean, there, there's if, nothing. If Richard
0: that- Nixon were to come back today, you know. I would still think he did the wrong thing, sure. but would I listen to him, yeah, I'd listen to him say, "What, what do you have to say?" And maybe we learn
2: something from him. Well, he's knowledgeable. He's interesting. Yeah. I, and so yes, absolutely. There's, there's. I, I
0: suppose the only fear with Armstrong or anybody, um, kind of in a similar situation, is is he using things like a podcast or like an endurance series purely for self service for for serving himself to I, make himself look better?
2: Almost certainly, right. Yeah. But so what? Um, if it's interesting to you, then that's fantastic, right? It's not okay. like it's not like you're lining his pockets with money by listening to his podcast. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so be, you know, if uh, him making money is something that would be bothersome to you, then yeah, maybe look into the Livestrong.com and see if uh, if there is still any kind of association with Lance Armstrong. His podcast, mm-hmm. I don't believe. Have, makes any money at all. I don't think he has any ads on it or anything. So that's just Welcome something he club, does for fun. Friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, uh, let's get on to our paceline picks, huh? Um, this is our exercise in taking useless time on the internet and turning it into a useless segment. Uh, but what the heck? We gave it a name. We gave it a time. <laughs> so we do it regularly. So it sounds important. Paceline picks, right? Yeah. Uh, what do you say? Should we start with the with the absentee first,
2: let's do. I'm curious do what Mr. Loveboat has to say.
3: Okay, so my pick for this week is Santana Adventures, the tour company that I'm currently traveling with here in Corsica. They are an outgrowth of Santana tandems and began offering rallies and other get togethers for tandem owners years ago. And this is their first trip in which they're doing a tour that's more or less oriented to people on single bikes. What makes them a little different is that they do cruises in Europe, and they charter the whole of the cruise ship, and uh, you and a significant other or friend or whatever uh, get uh, a stateroom to yourself, and on the upper deck you... Put your bicycle up there and in the morning you get off and go for a ride and in the afternoon you pull up in another port it's a true point-to-point ride and you pull up in a different port and pull your bike back up onto the ship and they steam off to the next destination i've done one of their tours once before and it's a pretty genius format you never have to pack your bag until you're actually leaving the ship at the end of the tour so it's a really unusual format uh Backroads and Trek have both uh, copied this to some degree. I'm uh, excited to say that Santana Adventures is actually less expensive than either of those and they truly are the originator of this format of travel. You should go there and check out the uh, check out the site and there's a first to know email list and sign up there. One of the unusual things about Santana Adventures is they've got such a strong following. Frequently, their tours will sell out in 48 to 72 hours after being announced. So you really do need to be on their mailing list if you want to do one of their trips. So we'll have the link there in the show notes. Check them out. Pretty neat company. I like them a lot.
0: Uh, he really is on the love boat, isn't he? Yeah, I'm going to start calling wow. him
2: Captain Stubing
0: point-to-point riding. The ship comes and picks you up. You stay on the boat. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I tell you. All right, Fatty. He's just the, making me mad. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll get over it. Let's. let's what do you have for a pick?
2: All right. Mine comes by, uh, via the guy who has been blogging as Cyclicious, uh Richard Masoner, for a long time. I think he's been blogging about as long as I have. And I put out a call for paceline picks because I was coming into this hour with a pretty weak pick of my own, and his is much better. And that is a Crofton man, Richard, Flan- Richard Flanagan, 53 years old, just set a new world record for wheeling. He did 16 miles, 65 laps, I guess. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to do the math, so that's like, what, a quarter-mile track? Uh, in yeah. one hour, a mile longer than the previous record. So, kudos, Richard Flanagan. Uh, can you wheelie? I can't. No, I can't ride a wheelie for even a second. I can
0: Yeah, I can't do a wheelie for sixteen
2: inches. <laughs> oh, the guy yeah. did sixteen miles. Yeah, that's so. It's that's impressive, but you know, at some point, it's like, hey, buy a unicycle, dude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> He'll be on a Red Bull Rampage video before you know it. All right. Um, have you ever had a bite stolen fatty? I have. Man, uh, it makes you so mad. Yeah, so have I. It sucks. It stinks. And stinks is the idea behind my Paceline pick. It is called Skunk Lock, and it is the brainchild of Daniel Idskowski of San Francisco. Uh, the lock looks like a U lock, but inside the hardware is a nasty chemical that smells like vomit. So if a thief cuts through the lock, they will get a good whiff of the stuff and are bound to puke. (laughs) This is a crowdfunded project. The inventor even has cut his own commercial. Skunk Lock
2: is a bicycle lock that was designed with a built-in deterrent. It can actually stop a thief from stealing your bike. Lock manufacturers won't tell you the fact that any U-lock can be compromised with the right tools.
0: I love the puking in the background there, by the way, too.
2: <laughs> and I'm pretty, pretty sure that good, was huh? pretty sure that was Tears for Fears music going on in the background <laughs> too. Right.
0: Uh, Skunk Lock has received the funding needed to move forward, and the company plans shipping locks next year at 150 bucks each. The purchase does come with antidote, so Skunk Lock owners can clean their bikes should a thief buzz through the lock and the spray is released. Skunk Lock, my pace line pick stinks.
2: Hmm. Okay, yep. I yep. I have concerns. <laughs> I, I I have concerns about innocent victims. Yes. <laughs>
0: Why did I think lawyers right away? Passers-by and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Check out Skunk Lock before they pull it off the market before the lawyers get to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh the pace line is of course a production of FatCyclist.com. dot com. Fatty, uh, anything else coming up? The. The Dream Bike Survey still going on.
2: The Dream Bike Survey is still going on. We have, I think, around like fifteen hundred responses, and a lot of really interesting data coming out of that. Looking forward to making that one of our main segments in next week's episode.
0: Yeah, when we get Patrick back, we all will dream about what we. And I've been out uh, surveying and actually looking at actual bikes that could consider. I would consider a, a dream bike. Oh, yeah. So. I think we'll all have something to kick on in on this um, come next show or whenever we decide to do Dream Bikes. But it will be coming up soon on the Pace Line. Uh, the show, of course, lives on RedKitePrayer.com. Show notes, links are there along with a spot to leave a comment. Podcasts can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music. Remember to rate us if you subscribe using uh, one of those. And follow us on Twitter at paceline podcast. Podcast. Uh, notice I've been picking up quite a few little followers there. Little, some good followers there at PaceLine Podcast. So join us there for occasional ramblings. Tell your friends, your kids, your dog about the PaceLine. We're sure they will love it. Anything else, Fatty? Let's call it good. All right, cool. Let's go for a ride. Be nice to each other. Be safe and don't puke. (laughs) Let's pressurize a unique chemical compound into the lock that bursts if the lock is compromised.